Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love the local church. I mean, wow. Uh, we soak them and we send them. Okay, you see that? We do it all here. It's incredible. Uh, I want you to understand this. If you don't know this, you're new. It's okay. You've been coming around for a while. You're watching online or you're in the lobby. Welcome. And you don't know this about us. We mean this. Because I, I don't like to say things that I don't believe. We believe here that our sending capacity is more important than our seating capacity, and our seating capacity only serves our sending and our serving capacities. I want you to pray for that couple that you just saw in the video. I want you to begin to pray for them, because here's how it works. They've already, they've, they've already moved. They're living in Central Asia. They're learning the language. They're, they're in their apartment. We're talking with them. And here's how world missions works. If you're new to this, it's okay. I want you to understand it. I want you to be a part of it. There are three roles when it comes to world missions. There are the players, the payers, and the prayers, okay? And so they left. They're the players. They're learning the language. They, they, had, they, they cried. They told us a story. They cried and said goodbye to grandparents. They're not coming back for years. They're learning a language to reach a people. They're the players. You and I, we're the payers. We're the prayers. We're gonna lift them up in prayer. And, and here's what they're doing. When you think about that couple, think John the Baptist. They are making a way in the wilderness. Here's how world missions works. When you go to another country to stay there and be legitimate there, you need a visa, right? Think the Apostle Paul had his Roman citizenship. He used it all the time to get around places. Well, if you go to these hard to reach areas, they don't give out visas easily. You, you get like a two-year visa if you do education or you're a student. You get a, usually a three-month visa if you're on a tourist visa. It's not sustainable. And so they're going ahead and they're, gonna, they're basically saying, we're gonna fix that. We're gonna go start businesses. We're going to hire people and they're gonna be able, we're gonna hire Christians who are gonna be able to get business visas, which means they're gonna be able to stay a long time. So pray for that couple. Uh, when you got here today, if you were new and, and you wanted one, we gave you one of these. This is our forward booklet. Uh, really, really special series and season that we're in. You can pick one of these up at the welcome tent on the way out if you haven't gotten one. Uh, but here's, here's the whole idea. Our church is moving forward, right? We, we think every church should move forward. For us in this season, it means that we have a future home and hub downtown. It's gonna be over 1,200 seats. That's 300% more seats than we have here. We're really excited about that. Um, but, but we're more excited. I mean, that's great. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna make disciples. We're gonna mobilize them for mission. We're gonna do it in environment and prayer and worship. We're just gonna keep doing that until we all die. And then we're gonna pass the church off to the next generation to do the same thing. That's what we're gonna do. But I, I'm more interested in you guys going forward, right? We believe that every Christian can and should go forward. Is it optional? I don't think so. I think it's a moral and spiritual necessity. It's, it, here's how we say it here. It's okay for you to not be okay, but it's just not okay for you to stay there. We want you to come as you are, but please do not stay as you are. Let, let, let this church, here, here's our prayer for this church, that we would be a conversion community. That's what we want. Where people's lives are, we don't play church here. We don't go to church here. We wanna see your life transformed and changed by the gospel. That's our hope. And out of that, we have two goals for the initiative. And goal one, 100% participation. Every person who calls Two Cities Church home, whether they're watching online or, or they're in here, they give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings to this initiative. And, and, and for many of you, it's gonna be an additional gift because you're already consistently generous at our church. For others of you, you've never given ever to the kingdom of God. 
and it's going to be your first gift. And we're used to that. We had 367 families or individuals give for the first time this year to our church. And the year's not even over yet. That's more than one person new giving to our church every day. Very excited. Second goal is $2 million in one-time gifts. Now, now, that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, we're, we're at least $2 million we're hoping. And, and I've told you so many different stories. Uh, but I got to my office yesterday. I was out of town. I got back in town. I was working on this message, internalizing it some before our Saturday night service. And I get into my office, and on my office, there's an envelope. And it's from Coastway Church. I thought, well, this is interesting. So I open it up, and it's a handwritten note from uh, Jeremy and John, the senior pastor and the executive pastor, saying, hey, we're watching the Forward series. Thanks for helping us go forward. In close, you'll find a small check. We are a brand new church plant, and uh, we're just getting off the ground, but we want to give back because you helped us go forward. And there was a check for $2,500 in there. I thought, this is amazing. We, we, we're seeing all different people in all different life stages given. We, we had a retired couple on a fixed income give $10,000 to this initiative. We're, we're humbled. Uh, we had a, I had a young lady reach out to me yesterday over email. She's a Wake Forest graduate. The email starts, Dear Pastor Kyle, I'm currently studying at Oxford. Ah, oh, of course you are, right? These, <laughs> these Wake Forest students, come on. There, she says, I'm currently in grad school at Oxford. It's been difficult. She said, but she said, but I started to watch the Forward series. She was part of our church while she was here. She said, I started to watch the Forward series. It's really, really helping me. Um, and in fact, while I'm in grad school, I got my first, this is her words, I got my first adult job. She said, uh, and, and uh, it's just part-time. And she said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give $250 to this Forward initiative because you helped me go forward as a student and I wanna invest in future Wake Forest students. I thought, Amen. So what are we going to do with this money? We are going to use the majority of it to help us to get into a future home and hub. And then we're going to take 10% of whatever comes in and we're going to give it, we're going to break it up locally, nationally, globally. Globally, we've got two partners, the couple that you just heard about in Central Asia, as well as our team in Mumbai, who's reaching Muslims, college students, the local church, the slums, and unreached people groups. I mean, they are doing a, Mumbai is the largest concentration of spiritual lostness on earth. And so we want to give them some more money so that they can go further faster. Now, we don't know what's going to come in. We, we had one member of our church. Uh, he, he said he had a vivid dream. It was, I think it was dark and it was raining outside. It was the middle of the night. He said, he said I had this vivid dream that Pastor Dave showed up knocking on my door in the middle of the night. <laughs> Scary, right? <laughs> he, says, he says, and I open the door and it's Pastor Dave. And Pastor Dave says, I wanted you to know we raised it all. He said, all of it? He goes, yeah, all 16 million. <laughs> so we'll see, right? Who knows? <laughs> but I said, hey, listen, if we were Presbyterian, we'd say that dream doesn't mean anything. But we, but we're, <laughs> we, 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 <laughs> but we believe, hey, who knows, who knows what the Lord's doing? So let's take a moment and pray. Oh, Lord, it's good to laugh together as a church. And Lord, we just, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for grace. We thank you for all of these amazing stories of generosity. From a, from a Wake grad giving 250 and a single mom giving 250 to uh, a couple giving 250,000 and, and everybody in between. Lord, we, we, just, we just are overwhelmed by the need in Central Asia and the need in Mumbai. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for these missionaries. We understand that, Lord, you had one son and he was a missionary. And we just uniquely love and honor and hold up missionaries who cross oceans and learn languages and, and live counterculture lives? Lord, would you uniquely bless them? Would we encourage them with our words, but also with 
some financial gifts at the end of the year. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, you can flip to, if you've got an old Bible or if you've got a device, find Acts chapter 4. I'm going to meet you there in a moment at verse 32. Let me just catch everybody up. What are we doing here? If you stumbled in here, somebody invited you at your first Sunday, you're like, what am I, what do we do here? We just walk through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, line by line. The book of Acts is the only uh, book in the Bible that really tells the story of the first church. And we think, man, ultimately every church should try to be like that first church. That first church really moved forward. So we're looking at and we're looking to the first church. And if you're new, let me kind of summarize. It won't take long. We've only been in the series for, this was our fourth week. Let me tell you where we've been. Week one was, hey, we need to move forward by feeding our faith. So that makes sense, right? You, you can't move forward in your faith if you're not feeding your faith with the word of God, with prayer, with the Holy Spirit. So you gotta feed your faith. That was week one. Take God at his word, take your next step. It's like, okay, well, if you'll do that, you'll move forward. Week two was you move forward by fighting for fellowship, or we might say fighting for Christian friends, or we might say fighting for a church family. I mean, I got you, and you know this, and I said this a couple weeks ago, you have to fight for it. You've got to drop your persona, acting like you have it all together. You've got to prioritize it in your week. You've got to get over the awkwardness of relationships. You've got to be honest about where you are. You've got to value it in your calendar. Okay, it's, it's hard, but you've got to fight for fellowship. A Christian, a, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble, right? Can any part, the church is a body. Can any part of a body live and thrive and survive apart from the rest of the body? No. So that, that was week two. And then week three was we moved forward by facing our fears and saying our prayers. And that was it. And it's like, that, that's, it works. God's revealed this. That's how it works. It's like, well, how do you move forward in all the areas that you've not moved forward in? Where you've been stuck, where you've been plateaued? We actually know the answer. You feed your faith, you fight for fellowship, you face your fears. And then this week, you know, what we see is you fund the future. You fund the future mission of the church. What we have happen, if you're going to look, I'm going to take me there in verse 32 in just a second. What you have happen in verse 32 is the church explodes again. The church continues to explode early on. From 120 to 3,000 to now 5,000 men, which is like somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. And here's what happens. When a church explodes that much, everybody's just got so, I mean, I don't know how to say it. Everyone's got a lot of baggage. I, you know, I just came to Christ, but I never had a dad. I just came to Christ when my marriage is a mess. I just came to Christ and I'm in prostitution and I don't have a job anymore because I'm not going back to that. This is, when people get radically saved and lives are transformed, it's a, it's a mess. It's a, it's a great gospel mess, but it is a gospel mess. And so everyone's got to go, all right, well, all right, we've got to financially figure this out, right? Every family has to figure things out financially. And there's going to be the rest of your life, unless you're, and some of you are, and congrats, but, but unless you're financially you know, independent and financially wealthy and you don't have to worry about that, most people, their whole life, there's going to be this tension between their family and their finances. And if you only focus on your family, you have no finances. I'm not going to work. Well, then your family won't eat, right? I'm going to work all the time. Well, then you won't have a family. There's a tension. And we see in the early church, there was this tension. They, had to, they, had, they came together to meet these needs. And so if you'll look at me, I want us to see this. We'll start in verse 32. In verse 32, here's what it says. Uh, now the full number, and that's uh, with women and children, somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. Now the full number of those who believed, okay? Uh, this is, that means they were Christians. Were of one heart and soul. So, so, so verse 32 starts with going, hey guys, the church was like super unified. And you're like, 10 or 15,000 people were unified? You're like, most of you are not unified, right? Like you by yourself. You're like, you're not an integrated person. You have all of these desires to want to do all these other things. Most of us, we can't get everybody with our last name unified. 
can we just choose the restaurant that we all agree on? We can't do it. And so here's, here's, here's what it means to be unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is what cults have, right? And the dangerous thing about cults are you don't know you're in your cult until it's the very end, right? <laughs> you're drinking the, the Kool-Aid, okay? But, but if everybody talks the same, if everybody looks the same, if everybody believes the same things about everything, you are in a cult. Now, unity is we believe the same things about the most important things. That's what unity is. Heaven, hell, God, sin, salvation, repentance, the gospel, we're aligned. Now, there's a lot of, you know, we're all different ages and we're different cultural backgrounds and we're different socioeconomic statuses and who cares? That's kind of, because, because what we believe together is so much more important than the color of our skin or, you know, our tax bracket or our neighborhood that we live in, okay? And so they, so they were like super, super unified. And then, and then this is where it gets a little uncomfortable for some of us. Look what it says here, verse uh, 32. And no one said, so this is what unity looks like. This is radical unity. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What an incredible unity. By the way, unity exists for mission. That's the purpose and point according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul and other writers. The point of unity is mission. In fact, the uh, American Revolutionary War, which, you know, when, when we were freeing ourselves from Britain, it, it took about eight years. And, and I heard one historian say that if the 13 colonies would have actually communicated, got along, aligned themselves, and stopped fighting with each other, it would have taken one or two years to fight that war instead of eight. What a picture for the church sometimes. We are so inward-focused that we become inward fighting, that we become unattractive and ineffective in our ministry to the world. Unity is such a big deal, Jesus prays for it. He, he's not even worried about the growth of the church. He predicted that. He doesn't pray for that. He predicted it. That was, that was he promised it. That was Matthew 16. Hey, the church, the church is gonna, you know, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm worried about that. What I'm worried about is I'm worried about the church being unified. So by the way, pray for the unity of our church, especially as we grow. Um, but look what it says in verse 32. It says they had all things in common. So when, you, when the Holy Spirit's working and changing lives and people are coming to faith in Christ and the church is strong, it's going to, unity's ultimately going to touch and affect our finances. Everyone loves being a Christian. Everybody loves singing kumbaya, right? And thinking about unity until it affects your standard of living. And you go, well, if I'm gonna increase my standard of giving, maybe I can't, Keep the same standard of living. Maybe I can't live at, well, actually, I know you can if you're a Christian. You cannot live at the same level of everybody who makes the same amount of money as you because you have a different set of priorities. You can't continue to increase your standard of living. You have to also increase your standard of giving. And so what happens is, if you look at verse 32, it's an attack on three of the major idols in our society today. Consumerism, materialism, and individualism. Right? Consumerism is somehow I am what I have. Like we, it's amazing. It's actually amazing. You got to give it to marketers. You got to give it to businesses that somehow they've convinced us and we believe it that we, I mean, how many of us are still defined by the car we drive or the neighborhood we live in or the logo on our shirts? Now, until recently, I wasn't a big car guy. I, you know, I wasn't real into cars. I mean, I don't want to drive a, you know, beater, but I just, I just, I just, I wasn't into like, you know, having a real nice car or something like that until the Ford Bronco came out. Have you guys seen this Ford Bronco? Well, I was on the, I was, I was, I, this was a, you know, a while ago now, but I, I spent like two hours one night just looking at the Ford Bronco online. And I was looking at all the different models and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, I, and at first I'm like, you know, I don't need another car. You know, I just bought a car. I don't need another car. And then I thought, 
And I, I later had this, I thought, I'm not cool enough to drive a Ford Bronco. <laughs> and then I thought, I had this thought after I had that thought. I thought, well, maybe if I had a Ford Bronco, I'd be cooler. I'm like, this is how it works. I'm like, I thought, I thought if I had a Ford Bronco, then I realized I'm, I'm not even outdoorsy, like even a little bit. I'm indoorsy. And, but I'm like, well, maybe if I had this car, I would do more. You know, I probably wouldn't. But this is, this is how consumerism works. Somehow we, like, it's unbelievable. Like, you got to give it to people. Like, wow. We live in a world where we have enough discretionary time and discretionary income that we can buy an identity. The car, the neighborhood, the house, the job. Secondly, though, it's, it's, it's consumerism. So we got to reject that. That's not where we find our identity. So I don't need to spend all my money on that because my identity is in Christ. It's not horizontal, it's vertical. Secondly is materialism. Materialism is the more I have in my hands, the happier I will be in my heart. You know, like a, a year ago, whatever, I see that they're building this building in downtown near the ballpark. And I'm like, awesome. I thought it was condos. It's like, this is great. We need it, condos, whatever they're building. It's right near the ballpark. Like, I want to see this city grow. And as it began to get, I was like, oh, a brick one. Oh, this is really nice. And then I'm like, it's a storage unit. I'm like, what's going on? that we build big storage units in downtown where we just put a bunch of stuff that we don't need. It, 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 materialism, I actually think that minimalism is a response to materialism. I'm not even, I'm saying a Christian response, but you know, there's, there's like shows on Netflix. There's mom blogs about minimalism. Not that I'm reading them, but someone told me. <laughs> but there's, there's like, there are like, there's like all this stuff on minimalism. Right, I mean, and, and then there's individualism. And we're, we're not against individual. I mean, we believe in the individual. You will stand alone before God and give an account for your life. I mean, you are responsible for you. We, we're all about individualism in that sense. But we're not about, hey, I can do everything by myself. I'm not needy or needed. We, we believe that independence is unhealthy, complete independence, and we believe that complete dependence is unhealthy. But you have to find that healthy interdependence that happens in genuine Christian community. And so this, they have to overcome those, those idols. And then look what happens in verse 33. And with great power. By the way, if you pray for our church, pray for power. This is what Jesus promised, and this is what they're experiencing, and this is what we're asking God. God, would you give us the same experience where people come into our worship services and they are literally changed and transformed? They're singing a song and they're converted to Christ. They're hearing the word and they're, they're convicted and they're repenting of sin. That in a service, Lord, you're reconciling marriages and people are forgiving people and bitterness is broken. This is what was happening. Look, and with great power, literally mega power, the apostles were giving their testimony. By the way, if, if you're new here and, and you're like, I'm not, I don't know, I'm checking out Christ, Christianity, I'm kind of a seeker, skeptic, welcome. Uh, what we'd say here is based on this verse, the, the early uh, apostles, the early teachers of, the, of, the, of Christianity did not teach what they believed just so you know. They did not teach what they felt. They taught what they saw, what they heard, and what they personally experienced. That's what they taught. Historical events. So it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they talked about the resurrection, which gives people an eternal perspective, which tells people all that I see is not all that there is. And this life isn't all that there is. And so look, look at the end of verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. See, I want to just take a moment and explain grace to us. 
Grace, so, so grace is a uniquely Christian idea. It's the opposite of karma, right? Karma's what goes around, comes around. Karma's you're gonna get what you deserve. Grace and mercy teach us. Mercy says, hey, you know what? I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And grace says, I'm gonna give you things that you don't even deserve. I'm gonna be so good to you. And I want you to understand this because grace changes and transforms the human heart. Look at verse 34 with me. There was not a needy person among them. So they experienced the power of God and the grace of God, and the result is no one's needy. Okay, well, how? There's not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So here's what happens. This is the simplest way I know how to say it, that grace turns you into a giver. That's what the grace of God does. That grace makes you a generous person. So, and, and, and the reason I want to talk about grace a lot is because I wouldn't want anyone to hear, and I know I, I push on us, I, all of us, I press on us, I call us up, all right? But, but what I want, I want you to hear what we say is that the goal of, of this sermon or any sermon is not do more, try harder, be better. It's experience the grace of God in your life and let it change you. So for example, there are probably, I'm guessing in a room this size and people watching online and in a lobby and all that, there's probably people in here who give nothing. Zero. And it, which would mean if there was 10,000 of you, it wouldn't make a difference. Because 10,000 times zero is zero. And so it's like, whoa. Okay, so, so if you give zero, what does it mean? If you give zero to the kingdom of God, don't worry about two cities. If you give zero to the kingdom of God, there's almost a 100% chance you're not a Christian. I just want to tell you that, so you know that. That'll just be between you and me. No one else will know. But you are not a Christian. It is impossible, impossible to experience the grace of God in your life and not become a generous person. Now, generosity is talked about in the Bible as a grace and a discipline. So like everything else, you grow in it. Like you grow in Bible reading and you grow in prayer and you grow in evangelism, you grow in it. But it has to be present in the heart. When you realize, oh my goodness, at great cost to himself, God decided to share everything with me, including his first and his best and his only son. And all I ever did was run away from God and all God ever did was pursue me. And then he told me I can't earn his love. He just extends it freely. And all I have to do is receive and welcome it. If that changes your heart, it does. That's what we want. We don't want religious people. We'll see this in a moment with Ananias. We don't want religious people giving money so they feel good about themselves. Please know confirming themselves in their worldliness. We want changed and transformed hearts, which means you have to have a changed and transformed way you see money. There are four ways that money can be seen. The first way is to see things is this way. What is mine is mine. We'll call that selfishness or stinginess, right? What's mine is mine. It's I, I get all I can. I can all that I get. I sit on the can, <laughs> something like that. It's all, it's all about me. It's all about survival. It's all about I have to live at my parents' standard of living as soon as possible. I have to drive the nicest car. I have to live in the biggest house. I can't give anything away to anybody else because what's mine is mine. It's why one study said thir only 13% of millennials give any money at all to charity. At all. So one out of 10 millennials, that's it, gives anything we're not even saying significantly, just any of their money away to anything. 
And it gets worse. Gen Z, the generation, and, and I, I want to be hopeful for these generations. I'm not here to beat anyone up or build people, but, but the, the generation underneath them is worse. The iGen generation gives only 6% of them give anything away to any charity ever. Why? It's that mindset that what's mine is mine. It's selfish. It's survivable. What do we expect of people who don't know God? It's all about themselves. It's all about their world. It's all about, well, if I gave, I couldn't go to Europe. I, I couldn't travel. I couldn't have four hobbies. I couldn't eat it. I couldn't eat avocado toast at expensive restaurants. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just came up with that. Um, <laughs> so, so the second mentality is, is what's yours is mine. That's stealing, right? So it's mine is mine is selfish. What's yours is mine is stealing. I was just with some pastors, um, and they were fascinating. They were, they, they're pastoring in downtown San Francisco. They, they live down, down, in downtown and everything. Anyway, I was just with them, and I was talking to them. And I said, man, tell me what San Francisco's like. Well, they said, well, listen to this. They said, they've just, they're no longer, San Francisco said they're no longer gonna punish people for fines of less, for stealing less than $50 worth of stuff. He says, so now in all of the Walgreens and all of the CVSs, people walk in with calculators and they will actually calculate right up to with tax $50 and then they'll walk out of the store. Stealing, what's yours is mine. Now we, I'm guessing most of us in here have not done that <laughs> or all of us here have not done that. But what we tend to do is we tend to have a scarcity mindset. We tend to focus so much on what other people have and what we don't have. We, we can't rejoice with people. We can't celebrate people. We can't be excited about what people have because we're consumed with we don't have it and they have it and I want what they have. So we can't have that mindset. The third mindset is what's yours is everybody's. Socialism. And by the way, this is not what's happening. And this is not Christian communism or socialism. What we see here is this wasn't heavy-handed from the government. This was open-handed from individuals. It was voluntary. It was temporary. I love what Margaret Thatcher says about socialism. The reason socialism doesn't work is eventually you run out of other people's money. Now, what's interesting here is, and this is a biblical idea too, because of the 10 commandments, think about this. Two of the 10 commandments are about your own personal private property. The sixth commandment, do not steal, and the 10th commandment, do not covet, is about the individual personal property. So, so we don't believe in socialism, what's yours is everybody's, and you know, we don't believe in stealing, what's yours is mine, and we don't believe in being selfish, what's mine is mine. We believe, in a, we believe in a fourth way. What's mine is actually God's. It's stewardship. It's what the Bible teaches. It's that there's no such thing as ownership when it comes to God and me. It's loanership. That's what it is. All that I think that, that I own is only from God on loan. That's a good way to think about it. And, and, and listen, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this. I'll, I'll help us all to kind of know that this is what's going to happen. We don't like to talk about this, but I have to remind myself and all of us of this, that, that all of us are going to die. So we're not going to be able to take anything with us, right? And so here's the bad news. Somebody else is going to play with your golf clubs, <laughs> right? I mean, I, 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 I don't have this amazing house or anything, but we've done some work on our house. I'm like, I do love my house. We've redone parts of it. But every once in a while, I'll be sitting at my house going, someone else is going to live here one day. I, there's nothing I can do about it. Even if I live there the rest of my life, I'm going to die, and eventually somebody else is gonna live there. Parents, let me tell you what's going to happen. And those who aren't parents, you'll probably one day be parents, this is what's gonna happen. You're going to die, 
And then your parents, or sorry, then your kids are going to come to your house. They're, they're going to look through some things, and some things are going to be meaningful, and they'll, they'll, they'll keep those. And, and then everything else, they're going to give away or sell. And if you're middle class, they'll call it a garage sale, <laughs> right? And if you're wealthy, they'll call it an estate sale. It's the, sa- it's the same thing, okay? I'm just warning you guys. And so it's really good to know this is actually what's going to, it's just, it's just like, it's sobering. It's like, okay, stuff's not unimportant, but it's stewardship. And now, now there's two components to stewardship. So if we're really gonna say what's mine is really God's, then I have to understand stewardship. And stewardship is one of the main themes of the Bible. There's two components of stewardship. Component number one is management. Component number two is generosity. And management has two subcomponents. Management is oversee and maximize return. That's what God wants. That's what God wants from your life. I'd like you to, I'd like you, the body I've given you, oversee it, maximize it for return, please. The job that I've given you, I'd like you to oversee it and maximize it for return. Your kids, oversee them, maximize them for return. That's what God wants. And then the second component is generosity. Now, what I've had to learn is um, people can't be generous if they don't know management. They, so I used to say, and it's still true, but I used to say there was two reasons that people aren't generous. They're scared or they're stingy, which is true. That is two main reasons people don't give. They're scared. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't have access to 100% of what I've earned at all times. Okay, you're scared. Fair enough. Let's talk about that. Or stingy. You know, I, I just, no, I'm selfish and I want it. Okay. There's a third category of being just stuck. And it's basically poor decisions about management for years. You know, I got my third master's degree that I didn't need. And I still don't even have a great job. And I have $85,000 in debt. You know, and then I also have consumer debt because I don't understand what it's like to live within my means. And I bought a house I can't afford or an apartment I can't afford and a car I can't afford. And so it's like, you're asking me to give to the Ford Initiative? My whole life's out of order. And so what we want to do is we want to help people figure out management rightly so that they can then be generous. What we know is about, from the latest study, 85% of people who give to a local church have zero consumer debt. They've practiced management for years so they can be generous. So, but when we go over to generosity, the problem with generosity is everybody thinks they're generous. You think you're generous, and you think you're generous, and you think you're generous. I mean, you might stand up and go, you know, I struggle with working too much. Or you might say, I struggle sometimes being angry. Or because it's, Everyone knows that everyone struggles with this. You might say, ah, I struggle a little bit with lust. You may, you, may, you may be in some of these categories. But most people are not going to go, I'm, an, I'm, not a gener- I'm not a generous person. Right? Because we tend, to, we tend to, one person told me recently, we tend to round up. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And so we, 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 so we tend to think, oh, I, 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 yes, I'm generous. There was this one time I gave to a GoFundMe page. And I put my name on. I want everyone to know about, about my, my $25 gift. That, that, go fund me. Um, I, no, I, I'm telling you guys, I am so generous. Every time I see a stranger, I smile. <laughs> Every, there's been a couple of times in my life where someone's been lost and they, they, they needed directions. I slowed down. I stopped. And I gave them directions. Let's have a little bit higher standard up for generosity, right? here's a way, you use your own filter, right? Because the generosity is, at the end of the day, here's the heart of generosity. Are you a giver instead of a taker? Are you a contributor instead of a consumer? That's the heart of it. But, but it's really, if, if, I could, if I could bring it down practically, it's, is giving a priority, have you chosen a percentage, and have you made it progressive? 
That's the only way to tell if you've given in to consumerism and materialism and, and the disease that's called affluenza. Is, is I, giving hasn't been a priority. I haven't chosen a percentage and I haven't made it progressive. Priority is just, and I try to teach this all the time because I practice this and I really believe it. I believe in a theology of first. When did Jesus rise from the first day of the week? You know, do you have to do your Bible reading first thing in the morning? No, but I would recommend it. It's a theology of first. I give God my first. Why does the Bible teach about first fruits? I would encourage you to, to give first to the Lord, to just decide this is what I make, and so I'm gonna give first. This is one of the reasons to set up automated or recurring giving is like, I don't wanna leave something that important up to chance. I, I wanna make it a priority. Secondly, it's about choosing a percentage. Now, you know, there's freedom in Christ. A lot of people say, hey, a tithe's a great place to start. Uh, when, I, so I, I, when I came to Christ, I came to Christ radically out of Roman Catholicism. I've told you guys this story before. And all of a sudden, I'm, t I'm taught tithing. And I was, at the time, I was working at McDonald's. And they, they just told me, hey, listen, when you make a dollar, you give a dime. I thought, well, that makes sense. And when you make $10, then you'll give a dollar. Well, I can do that. And when you make 100, then you'll give 10. And it didn't have much, but if you make 1,000, then you give 100. And so when you make, if, you, if there's a time in your life where you start making 10,000, then you give 1,000. And I just was taught that early on in my life. And I, and I remember there was a moment where, and I'm not saying you have to tithe off of every gift that someone gives you. But I, I remember I had my high school graduation and $3,000 came. Uh, we had this big party, I got $3,000. This was 20 years ago. And I thought, do I have to, uh, do I have to tithe off this? And it, for me, at least, for me, it was a moment. I'm like, this is it. This is a big lump sum for Kyle. And, and I'm gonna just give 300 of this. And it was just a moment of teaching myself. And so I'll be honest with you, I mean, I, I got my own struggles, but, but tithing has never been a struggle for me because I was just taught, I was taught it early. It, 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 the lie is when you make more money, then you will tithe. No, no. I had this one guy, I didn't tell the story in any of the services, just came here right now. But um, I had this one guy, he was, a, he was a cardiologist, well, he was a resident cardiologist, then he was in fellowship. And he calls me and he says, dude, I'm about to go from making $50,000 to $500,000. Pretty cool. <laughs> he, says, I'm, he says, I make 50 or whatever it was, right around that, as a, as a fellow or whatever in this program. This was 10 years ago or five years ago, something like that. Um, and um, he says, um, and, and all of a sudden I'm gonna make 500,000. And I said, well, are you tithing at 50? Okay, you are. I said, then you'll be able to do it. You'll, make, you'll be able to make the jump. And he says, well, what should I do? I says, join my church. <laughs> but, it's just, but he's doing well. And the reason, he's not in our church, but the, re, the reason, the reason, he missed the rest. But the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole point is, you know, yes, if you do it at 50, you'll do it at 500. If you don't do it at 50, you probably won't do it at 500. And then it's make it progressive, you know? And progressive is, all, that's the challenge for me. For personally, it's the challenge to continue to increase. Um, and, and, and progressive is because, you know, the per I'm making numbers up, but the person who gives 10% at 50,000, that's a lot of money. Someone to give five grand of their 50 grand, they'll feel that. You start making 500? 50 don't, 50 is way more than five, except it may feel a lot different. And so the, the only way to continue to go, I, do I struggle with materialism? Do I have money or does money have me is for me to increase over time. And this, this can happen at a small level. I actually had a guy, this happened last weekend. I'm so glad it happened last weekend because now I can use it as a sermon illustration this weekend. But this guy, this guy came up to me after service, young guy. And he's excited and, and I've met him before. And he says, Pastor Kyle, I got to tell you something exciting. I said, what's up? He said, well, during this forward initiative, I've increased our monthly giving by five times. And I thought, oh my gosh. And then he said, we're still not at 10%. 
but we're trying to get there. I thought, well, this is great. What I, what I just heard is it's a priority. You just made a big jump for you and your family. You're still not where you told me you want to be, but you took your next step. There it is. I don't know another way to work on wrestling personally with, am I a generous person, other than asking the question, is it a priority? Have I chosen a percentage? And over the course of my life, especially if my standard of living increases massively, am I willing to reconsider my standard of giving? So all of that begins to happen, and then let's see what, what happens next in verse 35. It says this, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why did they bring it to the apostles' feet? For the tax deduction. I'm kidding. No, that wasn't why. There, was no, there was no tax deduction. That's a, that's a blessing and benefit that we now have, but they, they didn't have that. Um, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is why, by the way, we say here that we, uh, you give to the church, but you also give through the church. What, what this shows is trust and leadership. We know why people give to churches. People give to churches for three reasons. The need is obvious. The vision is clear, the leaders are trusted. That's why people give to churches and that's why people don't give to churches. And so what happens is the reason that I think this initiative has been so fruitful, even before our Commitment Sunday, is everybody sees the need. I'll have first time guests, hey, Pastor Kyle, nice to meet you. When are we getting a bigger building? Well, nice to meet you as well. What was your name again? You know, it's like these people, the first time they're meeting, they're asking, the need is obvious. By the grace of God, I believe the leaders are trusted and the vision is clear. This is also, you see, they give to the apostles, and then the apostles, the leaders of the church, give that money to a lot of different needs and ministries and missions. And this is exactly why, by the way, we have a one fund here. Every time you give to our church, you give to everything. Every dollar goes everywhere. That's how you can think about it. Every time you give, you give to the student ministry. Every time you give, you give to the college ministry. Every time you give, you give to local, national, and global missions. Your dollar goes everywhere. It's a one fund. That's what we're seeing here. They give, and then it's distributed out. And then look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. So he gets a nickname. Look, it means encouragement. So this guy was so encouraging, they're like, they're just gonna call him encouraging, right? We know that you nickname those you love and those you hate, right? That's why you have a nickname for your spouse. You have a nickname for your kids. You have a nickname for your boss, okay? You have a nickname for your coworker. You have a nickname for your loud neighbor. Um, it says, thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field. Now, we don't even know. Maybe he had 10 fields. Maybe he was really rich. It definitely doesn't say it's his only field. He's a, maybe he's a wealthy guy. Probably is. He sold, you know, he, he's like, all right, I'll trade in this portfolio. Great, I got this other portfolio over here, but I'll trade this portfolio. Okay, great. Um, he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's encouraging people with his generosity. Parents, you need to encourage your kids with your generosity. I, one of the reasons that I tell stories each week is just generosity is contagious and so is stinginess, <laughs> right? This is why generous churches are really generous and everybody starts getting on board because it's just, it's contagious. You start getting FOMO. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out. And I just thank God. I, I just thank God for some of the people who early on reached out. We didn't go to them. They came to us and said, we want to give these lead gifts. I mean, I, I think the person who said, you know what? We're going to give a quarter million dollars. It just... It was Barnabas for this initiative, thank you. That's what it was. It was somebody saying, I'm gonna, let me just, I don't want my name shared. I just wanna encourage everybody. God's at work, God's doing something. So if we, if we were just at the end of chapter four, I'd be like, this is the, let's close in prayer. Let's baptize some more people. I mean, it's just exciting. But what we see in chapter five is whenever God's at work, Satan wants to distort it. 
So Satan's going to show up in chapter 5. What we see is in chapter 4, Satan tries to destroy the church by persecution from without. And then secondly, in this chapter, he's going to, in chapter 5, which we'll look at just for a few minutes, he's going to try to destroy the church with corruption from within. Those are his strategies. Persecution from without or corruption from within. The only good thing we can say about Satan is that he's predictable, right? He's like the eagles. He's still living off of his old hits, okay? <laughs> we know what Satan's going to try to do. Now, look here. If you look at verse one, let, let's see this. This is gonna be the first sin in the church. It's gonna be the first funeral in the church. It's a sad and sobering story that reminds us God's on the move. Don't try to manufacture things. The, God, the spirit is working. Let me just show you. Here's what it says. But, so here's contrast. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and by the way, we, they're both believers. We know this early because it said everybody who was there believed. These are, these are Christians. These are born-again believers. They love the Lord. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. Well, well, not, well so, so far, so good. That's not, nothing wrong with that. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. So this is one of the amazing things. Of, a part of the story is that a husband and wife agreed on what to do financially. This is amazing right here. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, they, they, they were on the same page. They were just on the wrong page. But here's what it says. And with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, we don't know why. Maybe he sold, maybe he got, maybe the market was hot and he got way more money for it than he thought. We don't know what was going on in his heart, but he, 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 he says he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Again, which he's allowed to do. We'll see this. And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're gonna see this in a minute, but, but the sin, the first sin of the church is religion. It's trying to act like you're somebody on the outside when you're really a different person on the inside. The first sin of the church, guys, it wasn't some sexual scandal. The first sin of the church is, if I could say it in one word, is hypocrisy. The first sin of the church is lying. That really, what this sin is, is it's breaking the third commandment. It's using God's name in vain. See, when we, whenever I say using God's name in vain, if you grew up in the church, you think, okay, I can't say Jesus' name as a cuss word. You know, I can't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to use the words in vain. That's not what that means. I mean, that, that's what it means secondarily. What, what, what it means to break the third commandment is use God to make you look good. That's, that's what it means to use God's name in vain. I use God as a means to an end, me looking great. And this is the temptation of Christians. This is the temptation of pastors. This is the first sin. Ananias goes, this is a great way for us to make some money, sell a field, make some money, look more generous than we are, right? Isn't this the struggle in your life? You want your people to think your marriage is better than it is, and it's one of the reasons why it's still where it is, right? You want to give the right answer instead of the real answer. You don't want to admit your finances are not where they should be. You don't want to admit you don't know what you're doing as a parent. You don't want to, I mean, this is the scariest one. You don't want to admit that you're still struggling with some sin in some major way. And so the sin, this is an interesting deep thought. The sin that lets every other sin live is lying. That's what lets sin live. It's the demonic. There's a couple of sins that are called demonic in the Bible, but lying, why lying? Because Satan is a liar. What lying lets happen is it lets sin live in your life. And most people at some point just decide it's too hard to repent of this sin. I'll start lying about it. 
And some people lie with their lips and some people lie with their life. But I, I want you to see God takes it seriously. Here, look at verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan? So Satan sometimes goes to church, I guess. And he shows up in hypocrisy and he shows up in lies. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse four, while it, but he's like, look, let me, let me explain this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You could do what you want. God doesn't need your land. God doesn't need your stuff. God wants your heart. <laughs> That's what he wants. And it's, your stuff's connected to your heart. So he wants your heart. Uh, but, but he doesn't need, he doesn't want you to give out of guilt. He wants you to give out of grace and gratitude. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied to man. You, you have not lied to man, but to God. So he's found out. This is, and this is a lot of our fear, right? Our, uh, some of our fear, you don't mind your sin. You just don't, in fact, you enjoy your sin. You don't want anyone to find out about your sin, right? I mean, we probably all feel that. It would be humiliating if some of the sins that we've indulged in and thought we can do this one more time, no one's gonna know, if all of a sudden it gets exposed. And so unfortunately, and God often used somebody as an example and a model in scripture, this person's life gets exposed. It's like, gotcha. You're, you're using this as a status-seeking opportunity. You're using it in my name in vain. This is, about, this is about you trying to look good by being in church. So here's what happens, verse five. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. This is what, this is what sin leads to. Sin leads to death, right? Depending on your background, depending on your tradition, you've heard of being slain in the spirit. This is being slain by the spirit. This is something different. The, the, the Holy Spirit takes this man's life. Look what happens. Verse six. The young men rose. Every once in a while, people go, where's student ministry in the Bible? Right here, okay? There's something heavy that needs carry. They get the young guys. This is the, fir this is the first verse on student ministry in the Bible. Here we go. The young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, yeah, for so much. By the way, you'll see that each person is held accountable for their sin. The husband for his, the wife for hers. Men and women are equal in value, dignity, significance, and worth, and they're also equal in sin and rebellion. Verse nine, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So you hear this, and, and it is very, very harsh. You know, really what happened is, I, I believe that Ananias and most commentators do, Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. So what, what happened? They woke up in heaven. That's what happened. Lord, what was I doing? I should have just been honest, right? I, I just want to give us a moment here because I think we need today to move from pretending to repenting, Right? We, we don't need to perform anymore. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to lie. Instead of lying, here's what we need to do. Confess. That's the opposite of lying. Here's what confession is. Confession is this. I agree with God. 
That's what it means to confess your sins. I actually agree with what God has said about this. And long before you lie to the Holy Spirit, and long before you lie to other Christians, you know who you lie to first? You know the, the answer to this. You lie to yourself first. Would you stop today lying to yourself? You tell yourself you're okay when you're not okay. You tell yourself things are not a big deal when they are a big deal. And, for some, and I don't know what, you tell yourself your marriage is okay and it's definitely not okay. You, look, you're not supposed to look like Jesus. I mean, you can try. Over time, we will. You're supposed to look like people who need Jesus. And so I think this is a freeing moment because at first this, this sermon was about finances. It's not. It's about ultimately fearing the Lord. That's what this is ultimately about. Some of you need to, and, and I think transformation, some of you need to go, my marriage is not okay. We need to go to counseling. And that's okay. Some of you need to go, our finances are totally out of whack and we need some help organizing them. Some of you need to just, and this is hard, you see it to yourself, we're kind of worldly. It happened. It ha a, lot of, a lot of times you become worldly because your parents are worldly. That's how it happens. Or you start hanging out with a lot of worldly people. And you just have to admit, I'm worldly. It, it, it happened accidentally, maybe. We've become of the worldly couple. That's, that's what we've become. Okay, well, well then, great. We're at the heart level now. So we're going to, when you get to the heart level, you're not hypocrites anymore. By the way, what we want here is a humble hypocrisy. Humble hypocrisy. <laughs> We know we're hypocrites, right? Every once in a while, someone will go, I don't want to join the church. You know, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. It's like, well, we could use one more. That's my answer to that. We could use one more. We all know we're humble hypocrites. What, what happens here is, look, so we had, look at verse 11. We had at first great power, which we pray for. And then we had great, great grace, which we pray for. And then thirdly, great fear. Look at this. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard these things. Why great fear? Because we know that we're all liars. Because we know that we would love, we love to perform and we love to pretend and we love to have a persona and repenting is hard. <laughs> and being honest and open is hard because we have to admit we need the cross and we need grace. One commentator said, if God treated every sin the way he treated the, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a mortician on staff. But God uses it. God uses it. Look, look, what, look what happens next, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's interesting, the culture actually appreciates when the church takes sin seriously, but when they start with themselves. Not when the church tries to police the world, but when the church tries to protect itself from sin and its spreading. But then look, verse 14. Well, here's what happens when people fear the Lord and fund the ministry. Both are important. It says this. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. See, what happened in chapter five is God subtracted two people. <laughs> Right? God sometimes adds, sometimes God multiplies, occasionally God subtracts. God subtracted these two people, took, sin was dealt with seriously, and the church multiplied again. What, what a powerful picture this would be if we could have these two things genuinely in our lives. If we would genuinely fear the Lord. The def, fearing the Lord means this, I fear the right things. I actually believe that what God said is real. I actually believe that sin is dangerous 
and I actually want to repent, and I don't believe that God, there's no such thing as secret sin with God. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And then when I do that, then I just, what I want to do is God's done a great work in my life, and then I want to, what I want to do is I want to fund ministry and mission. You know, and that's what we've been doing as a church. As a church, over the last five years, we've been able to give uh, somewhere around $1.3 million just away to ministry and mission outside of our church. One, one of those was last year we were able to give $180,000 to Mumbai. And it's interesting because about a month ago, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, one of the missionaries who was stateside from Mumbai, he called me. And he said, hey, you guys, you know, you gave $180,000 to our, to our ministry last year. I said, yeah. He said, I want to tell you what we did with it. He said, we took a large part of it. And during COVID, we created hope packages. He said, because in India, you know, there was no, there's no Uber Eats that's going to bring you all this. It's like, if you were poor, you didn't have access to food. And there were these lockdowns. And so he said, there were people who didn't eat for days and weeks. He said, so what we did is we took these hope packages and it was, a, it was enough food for at least a week. And basically we brought food for a week and a with a message for eternity. Okay, that's what we did. So he says, we go to all the, he said, we went to thousands of homes because of you guys. He said, these pack, I don't remember what a package cost. I think he said a package cost like 10 or 15 American dollars. He said, we, we just went to thousands and thousands of homes. He said, he said, and we'd go and people would be so grateful. He said, but we went to this one home. He said, and then we got to the door and we opened it up and we, we say hello and we explain why we're there and that we have this packet of food for the week. He says, and the, the woman and the man at the door just start weeping. I think he actually said they fell down. He said, this is weird. I mean, you know, and people are hungry and, and we want to bring you food, but this is different. He finds out. He starts talking to him. He finds out. They had just a little bit of food left and they were going to make a meal that evening and they were going to poison their two kids and themselves. Because they just said, we just, you know, I don't want to watch my kids starve. I don't want to see that. I don't want to watch my spouse starve. She doesn't want to watch me starve. So we're going to kill ourselves. The missionary told me this is very common in India. It's an it's a honorable way to die. And so they, they go, we got this whole packet. Well, then guess what? The parents felt so guilty. They felt so guilty that they were going to take their kids' lives. And this, this couple, the, 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 uh, the missionary said, we got to share the gospel with them. We got to talk about grace. We got to talk about forgiveness. He said they gave their lives to Christ on the spot. He said, we're bapti we baptized them. We're discipling them. And instead of poisoning their kids, they're going to be now taking their kids to heaven with them. And thank you. And it was, it was the generosity of our church. It was your generosity last year, dealing with your own heart, giving generously, that ended up affecting and influencing people all the way around the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. It's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that it really does change and transform lives, Lord. When we come together and we just ask for a great power, not so that we would look great, Lord. Great power so that the gospel would be taken seriously, that sin would be seen as, as horrible and scary. The cross would be seen as big. Repentance would be seen as a way out. You would be seen as great and glorious, Lord. Well, we just, we love our, our local, national, global partners, Lord. 
We pray for great grace to be upon them, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would, I just pray against, Lord, trying to be status-seeking in the way that we relate to you, in the way that we relate to each other, trying to appear to be something that we're not, Lord. I pray to, to have a church that's deep in repentance, Lord. Lord, that we would be honest about what's going on in our heart, Lord. We'd be honest about where we need to grow, Lord. Lord, we thank you for grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.